We'll hear argument now in number 74, not for correction, 94, 790, Janet Reno v. Zeta Corre. Mr. Estrada. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Section 3585 of Title 18 instructs the Bureau of Prisons to calculate a defendant's sentence of imprisonment in two related steps. Under subsection A, the Bureau must first determine when the sentence began, which usually is when the defendant is received for transportation to the facility where he is to serve it. Subsection B of the statute deals with the issue of credit for prior custody before the sentence began, and it generally requires that a defendant receive credit for any time he has spent, quote, in official detention, unquote. The issue in this case is whether the Bureau is correct in denying sentence credit under subsection B to defendants who were released on bail within the meaning of the Bail Reform Act of 1984. Mr. Estrada, where is the respondent presently? I am told, though I don't think it is in the record, that is he is he in custody? Um, he is on bail in uh, living in the state of New York, I believe, Justice O'Connor. Some, some kind of supervised release status? Uh, bail status. After the judgment of the Court of Appeals, the judgment, I think, in the last footnote of the Court's opinion, instructed the District Court to grant bail to the defendant pending any hearing on, on the remand on just how jail-like the conditions of incarceration or of uh, bail were. What would be the effect of our ruling if it were in your favor? He would, would, would he have more time to serve? Yes, he would. Yes, he would. Um, the supposition of the Court of Appeals is that uh, because the sentence that remained was so short, uh, and practically most of it was subject to the dispute over credit, uh, that in order not to render the case moot pending the hearing that the Court ordered, uh, the defendant should be granted bail, and that's what the District Court did on remand. Uh, and uh, if we... Um, if we manage to persuade the court to our view of the statute in this case, the result will be that he will have to surrender for custody and serve the remainder of the sentence. The, the Third Circuit in this case rejected the Bureau's interpretation and held that the words official detention must be read more broadly than the Bureau does in order to include, <coughs> excuse me, a court order that releases a defendant in bail, but subject to a condition that he remains in a privately run halfway house under the conditions that the court termed jail-like. And our argument in this court has three principal points as to why the Court of Appeals was wrong. First, that the context of the statutory language indicates that Congress used the word detention as an antonym of bail so that a defendant who receives bail under any conditions should not be eligible for credit under subsection B. The second point that I'd like to make today is that Congress used the words official detention in the statute for the first time in 1984, and that it was by then settled in the courts of appeals under the antecedent statute that dealt with credit that somebody who was released on bail would not be eligible for credit toward a sentence of imprisonment. And the third point uh, is that 
if even if the Court of Appeals is right that it is possible to read the statute more broadly, the agency was now required to do so, and its view is reasonable. So it is did, entitled did to that. the Bureau of Prisons uh, have a different interpretation under its 1979 program statement? The contention is that it did. Our view is that it not. Uh, that it did not. There was a general rule that would have denied a defendant in the position of respondent credit even under the old policy statement. And in fact, that general rule was cited by the warden when it turned down the first request by the inmate in this case. There was an exception that came out of a case called Waldorf, as we discuss in our brief, that was uh, basically to the effect that if the defendant was ordered to actually be in a jail as a condition of bail under the custody of prison officials, credit would be granted in those circumstances. It was jail-like conditions of bail. Well, the use, the, the policy actually used not the word conditions, but jail-like facilities. Uh, and I am told by the Bureau that it was never interpreted in the way uh, that the Third Circuit thought it might be interpreted. I haven't heard respondent offer an example as to any other time in which, in which it was interpreted that broadly. And in fact, if it were, it would be inconsistent with the general thrust of the general rule, because if it were as broad as the Court of Appeals thought, it would swallow the entire rule that said that this class of people didn't get credit. Mr. Wo- uh, Ms. In, in that case, Mr. Estrada, was it, it was in a jail. Was it daily or was it just a weekend um, the facts that gave rise to the narrow exception, Justice Ginsburg, um, were that he was required to go back to the jail during the nights and weekends, I believe. Um, but it was out during the day. That's correct. Uh, and one other question I had uh, about the, the background of this. Between the time that the sentence was received and the time he was sent to the Allen, was it Allenwood Penitentiary? Yes, Justice Ginsburg. Did he get — he remained in the halfway house at that time. Did he get credit for those? No. Though that four weeks, too, didn't count? No. Even uh, though it was post-sentence? That's right, because the statute uh, uh, splits up the world into not the, the — based on the time when the sentence starts, not when the sentence is imposed. And under subsection A, the sentence starts when — Usually, he shows up at the jail where he is to serve that sentence. Is the claim here being made for those four weeks as well as? That's correct. That's correct. So and, and under our view, none of that is warranting of credit under the statute. If I could go back to, to make one final point in response to, to Justice O'Connor's question, um, the uh, the 1979 program statement that does contain the exception was republished in 1993 virtually in identical form, except that the 1993 version does not state that exception. Was there any statutory basis for that change, or was it just a a decision of the Bureau of Prisons to change the language? There is no record as to why when the Bureau republished the 1993 uh, version, mm-hmm. it took out the old Waldorf exception. Uh, Does the Bureau of Prisons have rulemaking authority? Not as to these matters. Uh, then what deference do we owe to the Bureau of Prisons' interpretation, do you think? Uh, 
Well, the same deference that you would owe to any other agency's reasonable interpretation of a statute that you have found it is charged with administering. Uh, once you have held under Wilson, in our view, that this statute was something that Congress envisioned would be administered by the Bureau within the narrow confines of what it is, um, they would get, in effect, the delegated implicit authority to fill out the details as to how better to make the, the statute work. Uh, it is obviously a basic premise of that argument uh, that the court in Wilson uh, found that Congress had an intent to delegate to the Bureau these sorts of computations. Obviously, if this were a statute, the administration of which is confided solely to the courts like any other criminal statute, that is not an argument that we would be making here. Uh, but once the court ruled in Wilson uh, that there was, to some extent at least, an implicit delegation to the Bureau to, uh, to administer this statute, in our view, they're entitled to deference on their reasonable views as to what the statutory terms mean. Of course, that is our fallback argument. We think that the statute is best read in the way that we have argued. That is to say that the words official detention in the context in which they are used in this statute connote the imprisonment that follows the a defendant's inability to secure bail. Um, and that is the use of the word detention has been given in bail laws even before the 1984 Act. Uh, in the case of Block versus Rutherford, for example, which is uh, cited in our reply brief, the court dealt with the constitutional requirements that apply uh, to a state holding pretrial detainees. And the court said that detainees, by definition, are people who have not made bail. I, I can understand the part that the thing, I understand your, your fallback argument, because I could understand saying the uh, States have so many different varying programs, and these may or may not resemble each other, and it would be a total nightmare to find an absolute rule. I, I, that's basically your fallback argument, I think. That's correct. Yeah, all right. Then, but I don't understand the basic argument as well, because uh, uh, what do you do? Is it, does it turn on the magic word bail? I mean, how do we know that the states will always use the magic word bail? Perhaps what they'll do is they just say, we have a person in front of us, trials four weeks from today, until trial. Uh, what you will do is uh, you will uh, report nights and weekends uh, to uh, the house on 14th and uh, 95th Streets. And there's a house there, and uh, the person gets in the house, and he comes in at night. He comes in on the weekend. He goes off uh, during, during work during the day, work of different kinds. I mean, there are a thousand variations on that theme. So I understand the rule that the circuit has. You look to jail-type conditions. I understand the possibility of saying it's all up to the Bureau of Prisons. But I don't understand this third possibility. What is the actual rule that we're supposed to interpret this statute to say? Well, use the word bail, then it isn't, even if you put him in, uh, like, uh, uh, Marion? During, no, I mean... Or if you, if, you, if, uh, uh, if you do use the word bail and you don't use... Well, how does that work, that third? Our basic 
contention here, Justice Breyer, is that the word detention, when used in the context of a statute of this type, has a plain meaning, that the Bail Reform Act of 1984 is evidence of what is usually understood. My problem is, suppose the state doesn't use the word bail. Well, the point I was going to make is that the plain meaning of the word looks to the consequences of the bail decision, not to the label that the state attaches to it, which is to so say — So what is the result in the example? The result is that if you are in the custody of state prison officials, you're entitled to credit. And Fine. If but not, what it is, is it's exactly the circumstance of this person here. No, it is not. No, no I'm, in my, I'm imagining a case. I'm imagining the state mm-hmm. having done to a different prisoner precisely what's true here nights and weekends in a house made of concrete. Mm-hmm. And during the day, the person goes off with a marshal close behind but not always present. I mean, they never use the word bail. That's correct, Justice Breyer. Now, what and, is uh, the result? The result is that person gets no credit because if the person is not in that house, as I understand your hypothetical, under the custody and under the control of state prison officials who may take him out without going to the court to ask for authority, and who may do to him many of the things that are done to, to both convicted prisoners and, and, and if the judge judges. happens to say, I'm not giving you bail, I'm keeping you confined. It You're going to go to the house on 14th and 95th Streets, and then exactly happens just what I said. I, I think I understand your hypothetical, Justice Breyer, and the answer is that under our view of the statute, the word detention connotes Connote the word detention, as used in the credit statute, connotes custody by state prison authorities, the old uh, bars example. And it doesn't matter what the state court calls it. It doesn't matter what the prisoner calls it. Does if it matter, wants- Mr. Estrada, whether the prisoner has any notice of the difference? As I recall these facts, this man was detained in jail for the first two months, so he got credit for that. Then he has to be released on bail, and he got this confining bail. Did he know that there was this change when he got those rather restrictive bail conditions? And, and yeah, well, tell me if he knew first, and then I would like to ask, if he didn't know, wasn't he entitled to notice? The, let me take that in two answers. As to the first point, the answer is we don't know because all of the records from the original case in Baltimore are sealed. So what was actually placed on the record is not in front of the court, and it is not in the record in front of the court. None, nonetheless, my answer to that is that by the time this happened, the issue of whether somebody could get credit for time spent in a halfway house had been litigated in the circuits. The Bureau had a policy. Both of those things had clear rules, and certainly that gives better notice to a person who thinks that he should be entitled to it than the rule that the Third Circuit came up in this case, which basically says that if it later should turn out that the person was held under jail-type conditions, then maybe depending on the outcome of a hearing, he'll get credit. So, Mr. Estrada, this is my, my concern. You say the Bureau had a policy and there's a statute that could be interpreted one way or another. But the, the rules are so careful, Rule 11, to say when somebody ha- makes a plea that the judge with meticulous care has to tell all the consequences of that. Now here, if a man is in a jail and then gets transferred to this halfway house where he's allowed out only once in 150 days, 
the notion that he would appreciate that that is not the kind of detention for which he'll get credit, that there's this tremendous change, maybe he would have said, if that's the deal, I want to stay in jail. Well, maybe yes and maybe no. I rather suspect that the county jail, when we was in the first place, was sufficiently unpleasant that that wouldn't have been Well, the, I was going to ask, Mr. Estrada, under at least the federal system, is it open to the prisoner to say that he wants to start serving his time immediately in a, a detention facility? It is, it is open to the prisoner to waive his right to bail. And the Court of Appeals, in making the notice argument that Justice Ginsburg was just referring to, in effect, said that. Well, suppose the opinion. court said, we don't have room for you in the jail. We're going to put you in that concrete house at 14th Street um, where you're not under the supervision of correctional officials until we have room for you. Could he, well, could he object to that? As we all waive, well, let me take the, uh, the question in two parts. As with all waivers of most rights, the court doesn't have to take it if there is a public policy reason why it should not. Um, as to all matters that bear on what may later follow from the bail determination, it is important to emphasize that under the bail statute there is a right to appellate review. And if someone is dissatisfied with, with the conditions uh, under which he has placed, he can take them up and say that, for example, they are, they are too restrictive. Well, I, do, do you think, in, in a case, I, I assume it would be where there's a short sentence, that if the prisoner wants to get it over with, he can tell the judge, I want to begin serving my time now, and the judge is bound by that? No. In most cases, I think the judge will give him his way. I don't think he has a legally enforceable right to do so. Uh, and if, as, as with many other things where people would like to do something that is not quite compelled by law, um, we will try to accommodate him, but I don't think that there is any legal rule, if there are good reasons to the country, why, it, why he must have his way in that respect. Um, if I could go back to the... Uh, could I ask you, one, well, before you go back to that, Mr. Estrada, I wanted to follow up on Justice Breyer's question. Uh, having the facts of this case in mind, supposing, I've got two alternatives, supposing a, the defendant asks for bail, and in one case the judge says bail is granted on the conditions set forth herein. In the second case the judge says bail is denied. And until the, for, for the present, you will be confined in exactly the same way. Have the rest of the order be exactly the same? Would you, would they require different results? Um, yes, but let me, let me, let me explain that as to the second hypothetical, the legal consequence under the bail statute of the, of the court saying bail is denied is that he must be confided to the custody of the attorney general. So therefore, the court doesn't really have the authority under the bail statute, I don't think, to sort of say uh, bail is denied and well, I'm going does it to, to the, confine you to Confined to the custody of the attorney general and that custody shall be carried out in the following manner. You don't think he could do that? No, I don't think he can do that. I, but what if the attorney general then followed up by doing exactly what this judge ordered. That, that would be a... Then he'd get credit. That, that's right, Mr. Stevens. And it is not our, our view that, uh, that the statute would... would Together, then, in both cases, there's detention. It's only official detention if the Attorney General makes a decision. It's not official detention if the court makes a decision. In both cases, there is detention in some sense of the English word detention. Only in the latter case is there official detention within the meaning of the statute. It's official if the Attorney General orders it. It's not if the court orders it. Well, 
In essence, yes, but let me make two points in response to that, Justice Stevens, because I agree with you that it is a troubling hypothetical. Uh, the first one is that Congress passes a statute like the credit statute with, with reference to classes of people. Uh, it is not a question as to how Congress would really think of a case that comes close to a line in some sense, but that wasn't the class that Congress didn't, didn't think of favoring when it conceived of the broad clause at, of the broad class at the outset. The second point is that, as we point out in our reply brief, being in the custody of the Attorney General, even if she chooses to put you in a halfway house for some period of time, uh, is quite different uh, from being in the custody of a private person. It has many legal consequences, including what the Attorney I General can do to you. Credit, even if the Attorney General decided to let the person uh, be free on his or her own recognizance, too. Well, let me still be official detention. I, Yes, I don't. It seems to me that if the court found that the defendant should be detained, which is a finding that under the bail law may only be made after finding that the person is a risk of flight or a danger to the community, it would be fairly fairly irresponsible for the attorney general or anyone acting for her. Attorney general be curious to find out what surveillance of the person would do if he was out on his own. Are there situations in which you might want the person to wander around? Maybe. I think that in most cases of the type that you hypothesize, Justice Stevens, it would be fairly irresponsible for the Attorney General to take somebody who has been found to be a danger to the community and put him, put him or her in any place other than a secure environment. Um, but even as to cases that, that can be hypothesized, our basic point continues to be the same, that the statute deals with categories of what readily came to, to Congress's mind as the class is most likely to be implicated well, by what, rulings of this what, type. What language of the statute do you rely on in, in giving credit for time spent in state custody? There's no reference there to the Attorney General. Once again, let me, uh, let me make the first answer to that question by emphasizing the answer that I gave to, to Justice Breyer, which is that it is not our contention that the credit statute incorporates in high verba the definitions of the Bail Reform Act. It is that in the context of a statute of this type, the word detention has a, has a plain meaning that connotes a denial of bail, and that an example of that it is the Bail Reform Act. Even if it were our contention that the statute simply incorporates the related statutes so that we were faced with the notion of, uh, of uh, this being limited only to the Attorney General. Uh, the Bureau has taken the view that it can extend that a little bit based on the legislative history of the 66 Act, which we mentioned in our reply brief, and on the settled practice before the statute took its current form in 1984, which Congress chose not to disturb. Now, I understand that one that if one gets to that level of the analysis, it is possible to quibble with whether the Bureau is right in taking those two matters to, in effect, impeach the plain meaning of the statute. But I would argue to you, Justice O'Connor, that if that's true, the remedy is to tell us do not give credit to state prisoners, not to say that everything else goes. Uh, and we think that within all of the normal tools of, of statutory construction, we have a fairly coherent view of the statute that accounts for the fairly unique nature of giving credit 
toward a sentence of imprisonment uh, that the other side simply does not have. May I ask one other question? What, what, where do you place the cases in which the defendant is granted bail but doesn't have the money to put up a bond? We place those in the category of detention, Justice Stevens, and the reason for that is that the Bail Reform Act uses the word detention not only to refer to the well, type that of category of cases, and the Attorney General would not necessarily be irresponsible to let a, a person who cannot afford bail free on his own recognizance, would he? Uh, I'm sorry, just seems. You suggested earlier that it would be irresponsible for a, a judge to let a person who's remanded to the custody of the Attorney General free on on his or her recognizance, because the, they would necessarily have been a finding of danger to the community or risk of flight. That's right. But supposing the person could not make bail and there was no such finding. Well, it would not be irresponsible to turn him loose, would it? That is not right, Justice Stevens, for the following reason. The judgment to set bail under that X condition is a judgment that the safety of the community and the, and, and the defendant showing up will not be assured unless the bail condition is met. If, if he cannot meet the condition. The attorney's general, the attorney general judgment would in effect put us in the same place as the earlier hypothetical, which is the judge has found that this will not be assured in the absence of the convict, of the condition, and the attorney general is nonetheless disregarding that judgment and setting the person free anyway. Mr. Chief Justice, if, if I may, I would Wait, like to reserve the I, remainder of my I, time. Can I, I want to see if I can get one additional. I'm going back to the same question, but it is what's bothering me. You can make your clear meaning of the statute work in the federal system, I think. All right, but to focus on what I think is bothering several people, I once saw a film that showed what the systems are in Alabama called intermediate punishments. All right, now, I don't know if you've seen that or not, but you can get the idea so of what, well, but there are a whole range of things called intermediate punishments. And so it's easy for me to think of this wide range of different degrees of confinement, etc., and to ask how your clear statement meaning works in that context. One way to make it work is to say, jail or not jail, that's what the circuit did. Another way to make it work is to say, did they use the magic word bail? But they may not have used that word in the state. I don't know if they did or not. A third way is to say, look to see if they're in the custody of the state attorney general. States may not use that kind of concept. So how does your absolute system work in the world of intermediate punishments, which could also be imposed as conditions of bail without using the word bail? Our system is based on the notion that most of the states have an authority that puts people in jail and keeps them there. Uh, and therefore, uh, that is the authority uh, who, if they had custody legally over the defendant, um, they get the defendant credit. And if that does not happen, uh, uh, then the defendant does not get credit. Mr. Chief Justice, if I could remit. Yes, could, very well, sir. Mr. Estrada. <laughs> Mr. Rockman will hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I'd like to begin by following up on Justice Stevens' hypothetical and asking the Court to imagine the following. Uh, let us assume that on the same date that the Court ordered Mr. Correy confined to the premises of the halfway house 
under a release and condi- on conditions order, which commits him to the custody of pretrial services, that there was a co-defendant, and that on that same day, the court ordered that co-defendant detained under a detention order. But the court also recommended to the Attorney General that that co-defendant be placed in a community-based program or residence, which the Bureau of Prisons, in its own program statement, suggests the court may do. I'm looking particularly at uh, the petition for cert, the appendix at page 46A. It's the very top of the page. Let us assume the Bureau of Prisons takes that recommendation in this hypothetical and confines the co-defendant to the same halfway house that Mr. Corey was confined to. And let us assume that both men, they may be doormates, they may be roommates, but for those same 150 days, they are subject to the same, as Mr. Correa alleges, jail-type rules that prevail in that halfway house. According to the interpretation of the Bureau of Prisons, of the meaning of the words official detention, this anomalous result occurs. Could Mr. Correa have said when he was acquainted with the terms of his bail, if that's bail, I don't want it. Could he have said that and, and withdraw it? He requested bail. He was in jail and he requested bail. That's could not, he, excuse, I'm sorry, Justice Ginsburg. Could he have withdrawn the request once he heard the terms of the bail? I think he could have withdrawn the request. Respectfully, the record is not clear that the request was made by him. And I would suggest to Your Honor that given the chronology of this case, that is not at all clear. Mr. Correa was detained under a detention order from the time of his arrest until one week after he had entered a plea of guilty. At the time the order confining him to the premises of the halfway house was entered, he had already entered a plea of guilty. Under the sentencing guidelines, there was then a certainty of a jail sentence. It seems to me highly unlikely, given the realities of the situation, that a defendant simply coming forward and asking for some kind of bail release, that would have been granted. What seems to me at least equally plausible and more likely is that the court may, for its own reasons, have wanted to place him in a halfway house. As I think um, Justice Kennedy indicated, there may have been overcrowding at the regular detention facility, and the court may have decided to place him in the halfway house to relieve that overcrowding. So there's no showing, you, you say, that he even requested a change from his jail confinement that, to his... Yes, that is, the record is not clear, and I'm suggesting to the court that the chronology of events makes it unlikely that he requested it or that if he requested it, it was, he got what he wanted. Your Honor asked earlier uh, about whether or not Mr. Correa was informed uh, with respect to the consequences of his being confined at the halfway house as opposed to his earlier confinement under a detention order. And I think that Judge Slobiter, in, in her opinion, indicated a concern about the unfairness of now not crediting, crediting a defendant with this time if the defendant had not been advised at the time of the order. But you just that suggested he wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have had a choice anyway that he, that he may not have even asked for bail. Poss- if, the judge de- if the judge decided to change his status from that of being under a detention order to a release on conditions order, I don't know that he had a choice. The only argument that he does is that a release on conditions order, and one is contained in the appendix here, requires or at least has a, a um, there is a place for the defendant to sign 
indicating his consent to the conditions that the order imposes. And in fairness, Correa did, there, his signature does appear. Mr. Rockman, I'm concerned that our recording is not going to be able to get what you're saying. Thank you, sir. Stand near the microphone. To continue. Or walk around, Mike. I hope I've answered your question, Justice Ginsburg. Yes. To continue with my hypothetical, the anomalous result that would occur. Tell, tell us, you know, what was it that Mr. Correa had signed? He signed, there is a portion of the release on conditions order which specifies the conditions of the release. In this case, the significant condition of release was that Mr. Correa was, quote, confined to the premises of the Volunteers of America, which ran a halfway house in Baltimore, Maryland, and may not leave unless accompanied by Special Agent Dennis Bass. Those are the exact words of the order. And, and that is, that is jail-like. Hard to imagine it's anything but, sir. Okay. Now, we were, we were uh, speculating earlier um, in accordance with Justice Breyer's questioning about what, uh, what would uh, satisfy the government's theory. What would satisfy your theory of the case? Uh, uh, suppose uh, someone uh, has to uh, — he's remanded to the custody uh, of his parents and uh, has to be home evenings and uh, weekends. Is that jail-like? That is not jail-type confinement. It's not jail-like. Uh, um, his uh, grandparents, that's still not jail-like. <laughs> a, a, an unrelated private party. It is not jail-type confinement, sir, because <coughs> the language of the statute now is official detention. The language of the statute, it's the predecessor statute, which was in effect from 1960 to 1987, was in custody. I don't see what this has to do with what's jail-like. I want to know what is jail-like. Uh, I'm sorry. The answer to your question is no, that would not be jail-like, as I said. When does it become jail-like? It becomes a private party, so long as you're remanded to the custom of a private, private party, related or unrelated. It doesn't matter, right? Correct. Uh, even if this private, you have to report evenings, you have to stay there at night, and if you don't, we'll send a marshal out to bring you back. The reason I was beginning to discuss um, the language of the statute and its history was to attempt to be responsive to your question. The answer is that jail-type confinement means equivalent to incarceration. That is the way that courts have interpreted the word That doesn't help me. I mean, incarceration is just a, just a fancy word for jail. Uh, Sorry? So, so, I mean, if that makes it easier, let's say, when does it become equivalent to incarceration? When the person is totally confined or where there are serious restrictions on the person's liberty and the and facility. being at a particular house every night and weekends is not a serious restriction on a person's liberty? It's, it could be, but it is not incarceration. It is not incarceration. I don't know. What about being, being there all the time? You cannot go out of this house at all, then all week long. The standard of the criterion that we're, we're looking for is one of jail-type confinement. If it's in a private house, it's not a jail, and that's okay, then. I'm attempting to answer. If there is a confinement to a private home, certainly that's a serious restriction on liberty, a complete confinement to the home. But it doesn't meet the other part of the test of jail-type confinement. It is not a, at a facility which has jail-type rules. It is a combination of things. It has to be a serious restriction on liberty in a facility which has jail-type rules. What are, what are jail-type rules? Would, would the, the fact that it's very constant confinement, with just getting out very rarely, 
that by itself does not mean jail-type rules? Mr. Chief Justice, jail-type rules, I think, are best exemplified by the allegations Mr. Correa made as to the rules that prevailed at the halfway house that he was at. He was subject to five security checks a day. He was subject to random breath and urine tests. There were severe limitations on his visitation rights, both in time and manner, with respect to friends or counsel. He was afforded significantly less in the way of vocational and educational and recreational facilities than would have been available to him at another federal facility. Well, I know some cases are easy. I'm not worried about the easy cases. I'm worried about where, you know, how we're supposed to administer this line in the future. There are some problems that have been brought out about administering the government's line. I'm not sure that yours is any easier. You can give me an easier, easy case. You say that, that your client's case is an easy one using this, uh, inc- you know, incarceration-like test. But I can think of a lot of very difficult cases. And I, I don't know what your criterion is except, quote, jail-like rules. Or actually, you should say incarceration-like rules. Well, if, you, if Your Honor would be kind enough to give me an example, what I'm suggesting to you is that the standard is a meaningful one and one that can be applied. It is neither amorphous nor elusive. If there is a serious restriction on liberty in a facility at which there are — which jail-type rules prevail, let me bring it back to the reality of, of, of the way what conditions are actually imposed by district courts and magistrates. Most of the, the most common conditions are home confinement. Under this test, clearly not, clearly not incarceration. The, the uh, referral to a drug facility or an alcohol facility. Again, the that I think gets a little closer, but again, it is not incarceration. As Judge Slobodo pointed out Why in her — Even if they give you um, random um, um, urinalysis urine uh, to see if you're following their regime? The, the reason, I think, that incarceration is something that merits sentence credit or, or, or confinement that's equivalent to incarceration is something that merits con- sentence credit. And home confinement — and residing in a halfway house but being permitted to go on work release uh, and being referred to a drug treatment facility are not the basis for sentence credit. It's in essence a kind of fairness argument. Just Silver pointed out first that with, with respect to Mr. Correy, most of the benefits, if not all of the benefits, went to the government. It assured his presence in court. It kept him off the street. It got the benefit of the lower cost because it is significantly cheaper to house someone in a halfway house than it is at an ordinary federal prison. And it got it, the space was saved for more dangerous prisoners. Judge Stover pointed out what is it seemed unfair with the government getting all of those benefits and Correa getting almost none, if any, not to give him sentence credit. All of the other things that, that Justice Clear, that you have mentioned are forms of a sentence of imprisonment, home confinement, Residing in a halfway house, for instance, may be a condition of a sentence of probation. Um, but what, what about the drug treatment center, where it seems to me, as Justice Scalia suggested, you could be subject to what you've previously yes. called jail. Uh, wait till I finish sorry, my sir. question, sorry, if you please. I'm sorry, sir. You could be subjected to jail, the sort of jail-like conditions you've previously mentioned, uh, in your urine tests, uh, monitoring several times a day. So how do you, how do you distinguish that from what, what you would call incarceration? Forgive me for interrupting you, sir. I thought you had finished. I'm sorry. 
The answer, I believe, is that being confined in a, or being ordered to remain in a drug treatment facility is one of the discretionary conditions of a probationary sentence under Section 3563. It is not part of a sentence of incarceration. That is the view of Congress. In other words, one of, one of the conditions a court may impose as part of a sentence of probation is that the person remain at a facility for drug or alcohol treatment. And what, what, the stat, what that statute 3563 provides is that that is only a permissible condition of probation well, then, if the person is there. I'm this, this is an exception, then, to your more general rule that if you have jail-like conditions, uh, it is incarceration, but it's not if, if it comes under this other section? I don't think, um, Mr. Chief Justice, that I'm suggesting it's an exception. I'm saying that it is not a form of, it is not a tradition, it's not within the traditional view of incarceration. Well, is that, is that still another qualification then? Even though you have all these jail-like terms of confinement, if it's not within the, what you call the traditional concept of incarceration, it still isn't incarceration? I have been arguing basically what Judge Sloviter suggested were not, would not be considered incarceration. And I think she is correct simply because, as I said, the statute, 3563, indicates that that kind of confinement, if you want to call it, I don't call it confinement, that kind of referral to a drug or alcohol treatment facility is not considered a sentence of imprisonment. It is simply considered a sentence of probation. Well, then why don't we let the statute be the criterion across the board? And Mr. Estrada says the easiest way to do that is to identify the state official who customarily has the legal custody of those who are committed to jails and prisons. And if during the time in question the individual is committed to that official's custody, it's detention. If not to that custody, it's not detention. If the statutory reference is good for the argument or the answer that you're making to the chief, why isn't it equally good as a general criterion? Because the statute, sir, that we are um, interpreting, um, unlike 3563, is not clear. And although we say it has a clear, there's a plain meaning that to be found, but the words official detention. Well, if you construe it the way Mr. Estrada argues, it probably is pretty clear. There are going to be close cases on either side of the line uh, in which one could argue it doesn't seem quite fair to treat this person with, give this person credit and that person not, but it's clear. It is certainly true that the one virtue that the Bureau of Prisons position has is that it offers a bright line test. But what we respectfully submit is that the test that can also be proposed, although it may not be a bright line test, still has considerable wattage. And that is simply that the notion of incarceration, defined again, as I, and I don't want to repeat, but defined as I have defined it, provides a clear standard for courts. All that has to be done is to look at the release on conditions order to determine, in the first instance, what the conditions of confinement, if any, are. If the, if the, and the release on conditions order under Section 3142, I believe it's H, the Bail Reform Act, the Court is required to set out in writing the specific conditions of the, of the confinement. How, how does this play out if it were in a state, wholly in a state system? Justice Breyer asked you about the person who was in, 
was being held in the state system, then he's transferred to federal authority. But suppose we were entirely within the state system, New York or New Jersey. Is it any different? When Your Honor asks, is it any different, the 3585b2 has language broad enough to permit credit, sentence credit, for pre-sentence custody by state courts or in state I, I'm just asking if you had this kind of case wholly within the state court, yes. where the state court judge had said, release on bail under these conditions, would that or would that not count against, as, for credit against sentence? Under our interpretation? No, I, I just would, if there is, if it's just as unclear, just as um, debatable under state law, I was just wondering whether the state systems are similar to the federal system. Has this question come up? Not that I'm aware of. Not, not, not all states have the same dichotomy that the Bail Reform Act has between detained versus released. Some states still use um, bail and don't have, they use the, the old-fashioned notion of remand as opposed to detained. There are just simply varying uh, systems in the states as I understand it. But I, don't, I believe I fully answered your question. Um, the problem with the, with the Solicitor General's rationale, I should say the Bureau of Prisons rationale, what they argue is that the touchstone or the, 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 the relevant condition is custody by the Attorney General. And in the hypothetical that I attempted to um, suggest to the Court earlier, it is the application of what they say the, the meaning of official attention is that results in that absurd, unreasonable, and glaringly unjust result. Because the application of that principle, making the touchstone custody of the Attorney General, results in the co-defendant confined in exactly the same conditions, in exactly the same place, by a judicial order, although not called a detention order, but certainly as official as a detention order. But maybe, but do you, do you, I was just, I was actually not, I was being slightly dim. I'm, I'm, I, you, because you think, too, they have a clear, bright-line test. What is their clear, bright-line test? That's what I'm having a hard time figuring that out when it's the state. I, I understand. It, that's what, I mean, is there words in the federal order say by custody by the attorney general? That's normal. But if you, you practice probably in the state systems too, as well as the federal, yes. Right. So how, is is there if you try you have to apply this to the states? How does there is there a clear bright line you can similarly apply to the states? The answer is no. And the fact that that test doesn't work for state custody, it seems to me, is yet an additional argument that it is an unreasonable reading of the statute. Why doesn't it work for state custody? Do, do states don't have bureaus of prisons. They, 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 they do not have an officer who is in charge of, of, uh, of, pr of prisoners who have been convicted of, of crime. They may, they well, may, every state has somebody like that. They may well have, Justice Scalia, but that is not the, the solicitor's test. The solicitor's test is, and the Bureau of Prisons' position is, it's custody by the Attorney General. No, they, I, thought, no. I thought it was, it was broader. I thought it was custody by the officer responsible. Well, Mr. Estrada, I thought, answered the question saying each state identifies some official as the one to have custody of those uh, who are denied bail. Well, that may be what Mr. Estrada said today, 
but that may fall into the category of a post hoc rationalization of a government lawyer for a position that is not the actual position. Well, let's assume that we want to consider that position. Why would that be difficult to apply? I don't think it would be necessarily difficult to apply because, again, there is probably some officer within the state, but I think it would do violence to, to the language of the statute based on the government's interpretation. The government wants to limit. Well, but you're, you're rejecting the hypothesis. I mean, you're rejecting the position. You're saying, well, the government used to say it had to be the attorney general, and now he's saying it could be a state official. And you're saying that there's an inconsistency there. I, I'm not sure that I think there is. But let's assume the government's position is that when we are talking about an issue of state, quote, custody, end of quote, the official we look to is the state official. As long as we can identify that official as the one customarily with custody of those who are denied bail under the state system, why is that difficult to administer? And I think your answer is it really isn't. It, it may well be, but it can result in the same anomalous harsh. It can re exactly. It can result in a situation in which there are going to be two cases in which the conditions seem to be about the same, but one is on one side of the line and one is on the other. That, that's your argument, and I, I agree with you. That, that's, that's a problem. And I think that that potential for resulting unfairness is particularly significant in construing this statute. This is a statute whose purpose, whose purpose is to assure fairness in sentencing by crediting pre-sentence confinement. Well, but, but the don't, don't we also have to accept the fact that even under your own argument, and under any argument I can imagine you making, there isn't going to be complete fairness in sentencing. Uh, you may very well have uh, a halfway house uh, uh, confinement or, or halfway house uh, assignment, I guess I will say, before sentencing, which isn't going to give you any credit. And yet at the end of a sentence being served, there may very well be assignment to a halfway house during a work release period. Credit is going to be granted. There's, you know, that's unfair, too. There's, there's some unfairness, I suppose, no matter how we, we, we try to take it. I think that, um, I'm not so sure that I agree, sir, that that is an unfairness. I, I understand why you think I might think that. But, I mean, the actual conditions are exactly the same in each case. Well, they are, except that when a sentenced prisoner is given home confinement or is given um, halfway, house. halfway house confinement, but it's not confinement. They're told they're, they reside at halfway houses and they go on work release. That's something they have earned. And well, it, it makes sense to count that as part of their sentence. Well, now, why? We're, we're not talking about fairness here. We're talking about the word, the phrase official detention. I mean, if you're talking about fairness, even if nobody thinks it's official de detention, the government doesn't, you don't, nonetheless, if you have to be home five nights a week, let's say custody of your parents, five nights a week and, and, and all weekends, shouldn't you be given at least one one-hundredth of that time as, as credit against your sentence? It's not being in jail, but it's a pain in the neck. And if you want to be perfectly fair, you should get some degree of credit for it, shouldn't you? Well, it's not a perfect world. We're dealing with a statute that took a rough cut at, 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 at eliminating some of the inequities. And the phrase it used is official detention. So let's work with that. But, but I think in order to work with the phrase initial detention, one has to consider where the phrase came from. And that brings us to the legislative history of the statute. Official detention was first used by the Congress in a proposed revision of the statute in 1973. Over the course of the years, 
the bail reform statute, pardon me, the sentence credit statute, was enacted in 1960. Uh, it had the word, it was then Section 3568, and it had the words in custody in it. Because the Congress in, or various Congresses, in various purported attempted revisions of the statute, used the phrase, phrases, official detention, official custody, custody, and confinement interchangeably. Every court of appeals that has addressed the question, and the Solicitor General agrees, has determined that no change in the meaning of the statute was intended by the change of words from in custody to official detention. If official detention and in custody mean the same thing as that legislative history and the Court's opinions say they do, then there are then court opinions which interpreted the words in custody should have direct bearing on the meaning of the words in the statute. And the courts have interpreted the word courts interpreted the word in custody or custody to mean total incarceration. I understand that there is an argument, certainly, for crediting parts of, the, of residing at a halfway house or crediting the one-fifth of the one day or the night. But the word that was used, the words that were used, official detention, don't, didn't emerge full-blown. They come with a history. And that history says that official detention means the same thing as custody, and the courts have interpreted custody to mean total incarceration. Does that mean, just so I have your position clear, that if in this very facility the order had provided that the, the uh, inmate, if you want to call him that, could have gone out during the day and attended to his work but had to spend the nights and weekends in the facility, that would not be total confinement? I think that's clear from Judge Slover's opinion, and that would, not be, that would not be total incarceration and therefore would not be official detention. Mr. Rockman, why do you say that official detention means custody? What, what, what's your basis for Again, that? sir, I'm sorry. I say that because the original statute, the predecessor statute, used the phrase custody. But this was before the Bail Reform Act. I mean, isn't it, isn't it conceivable that this new terminology was adopted in connection with the Bail Reform Act and that the best way to decide what it means is to read it in conjunction with the Bail Reform Act? That, pardon me, sir, that would be correct, Justice Scalia, if, if the appearance of the phrase official detention, if that was its first appearance in 1984 when this statute was enacted and then 1987 when it went into effect. But as I try to make clear earlier, the words official detention, the phrase official detention, goes back to 1973, well before the Bail Reform Act, well before the creation of a detention order. They're not the fraternal twins. And that is why I say that the court, every court of appeals that has considered the question, the Solicitor General concedes and agrees that this is so, that the use of the words official detention connotes no change in the meaning of the statute from the previous language, which was custody. And custody, according to unanimous interpretation of the courts, custody means total incarceration. And that is why I believe, in her well-reasoned opinion, Judge Sloboda limited the sentence credit that she permitted to situations involving total confinement or, or incarceration and had to reject, and as she pointed out, reject things like residing in a halfway house but being permitted to go on work release or home confinement. The 
There are other arguments here, but I see the light. Excuse me. I thought the predecessor statute didn't use the term official detention, but it used the term custody. Yes, sir. That's what I said. I thought you were saying that the pre predecessor — I thought you said that the phrase official detention did not come full-blown full at the time that the Bail Reform Act was enacted, but that it had a long history. Yes, sir. It had a long history is, is a statute with the word custody in it. Yes, sir, but in it — Not a statute with the word official detention in it. That is correct. But I thought what I said was that in the legislative history, starting in 1973, there were various attempts to amend or revise the statute. And in those suggested revisions of the statute, over the years from 1973 up until 1984, the various Congresses used interchangeably the phrases custody, official custody, detention, and official detention. Thank you, Mr. Rockman. Thank you, sir. Mr. Estrada, you have two minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I would just like to emphasize that the standard that was adopted by the Court of Appeals and is being urged by Respondent is unworkable. What Respondent has done, in effect, is to ask the Court to come up with a set of essentially legislative classifications uh, based in part on what would be considered probation under Section 3563. In that connection, I would like to highlight, as we did in our reply brief, that if you took all of the conditions that Respondent had in this case uh, and asked what those would be called if it were a sentence under the federal system, the answer would be that it is a sentence of probation, not a sentence of imprisonment. And I would refer the Court to Section 3563b12, which identifies what happened here as a permissible condition of Probation. But you don't care about that. that. That's just in case we don't we don't accept your rationale of the case. Well, even if we accept the incarceration rationale, you'd say there still wouldn't be incarceration. Well, it shows, as one of our statutory arguments, Justice Scalia, that what Congress was trying to do here was to provide credit for only one type of federal sentence. This is a statute that deals with credit only for one of the many possible federal sentences that may be imposed. And the fact that if we took everything that happened here and asked what it would be called if it were a sentence, uh, and that the answer is not what the statute gives credit for, we think it's a very powerful textual indication that this is not the type of case for which, for which credit was contemplated. On the issue of lack of notice, I would like to, to refer the Court to 18 U.S.C. 3142H, which is part of the bail statute, and has a specific list of matters that the defendant must be advised of when he is granted bail, uh, including his his duties under their bail bond, and the absence or any consequence as to credit is not one of them. But the, it's not one of them. So it's not one of them. Thank, Thank you, Mr. Estrada. The case is submitted.